This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast. I am Hal Hammonds and I am a citizen of heaven. And I am your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. I bring you this message of hope today from Pensacola, Florida. This is report number 8, dated May 28th in the year of our Lord, 2019. For this very special episode of Citizen of Heaven, I was able to sit down with my brother, Paul Hammonds, who preaches the gospel in Kimberly, Alabama. He discussed the work he has been doing recently in the Lord. Here is the synopsis. Paul has been preaching about the blind man in John 9. Just like Jesus brought light to the eyes of this man, so also he brings lights to the world, if the world will open his eyes to him. Paul has been reading Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift. Exactly how advanced is human society? Depends on how honest we're willing to be with ourselves. I've been hearing Alabama has criminalized abortion, but that doesn't mean the culture war has been won, even in Alabama. Paul's been playing MMOs, massive multiplayer online games. Leveling up is a lot tougher to measure in our walk with Christ, but that doesn't make it any less important. Are you ready? Here we go. This is what Paul's been preaching. You know, there's some sermons that you give that are, are, are good and we get through them, and then there's some that really are inspirational in a lot of ways, and you, you kind of feel uh, inspired even more. And I think this one was one of those. We, we did a lesson on John 9, uh, the Jesus healing the blind man. And, you know, if, as you studied uh, John, and your viewers, I know a lot of have, have studied John, you know that John doesn't include anything by accident. And so you start to see the way that he places certain events and certain miracles and certain discourses all for the purpose of of the themes that he has created in, in this book. First of all, he doesn't even ask this person anything. There's no dialogue between this man at all. He mm-hmm. just sees him, his disciples ask his, who sinned, and all of a sudden Jesus is healing him. And he doesn't actually heal him. He sends him off, which, again, is unique. There's no other examples that I can find where, where Jesus does not heal someone on the spot when they when they are being healed. He, he, gives, he puts the clay on his eyes and says, go wash in the pool of Siloam and you will be healed. And, and so there's a lot of things that are very different about uh, about this miracle, and it's the only blind man that is healed in the entire book of John. And it becomes pretty obvious as you read it that what's going on in chapter 9, not only with the healing, but with the subsequent cross-examination that this man has to go through by the Pharisees who cannot accept that Jesus has done what they claim he has done. It's a reflection of what's been going on in chapter 8 and the discourse that John ha- that Jesus has with the Pharisees, which starts off uh, after the after the woman caught in adultery, where he says, "I am the light of the world," right. uh, when he comes to the man that is blind, uh, he says, "While it is yet day, I, we need to do the works that God has sent us to do. As long as I am in this world, I am the light of the world." Mm-hmm. And then he heals this person. Right. Uh, he gives him sight in, in a literal way. And then we get to watch this whole idea of light and darkness as the Pharisees grow increasingly. I think you could say. Um, uh, unreasonable in their That's a in their, word, in their objections uh, and, and going on to the point where they've actually now they take a, a blind man who doesn't know anything much about Jesus at all other than that he will acknowledge that he's a prophet well half of Jerusalem believed he was a prophet right. that's not unusual uh, they've taken this man from acknowledging that to by the end of it saying if this man were not of God he could have done nothing uh, he is of God he is who he says he is and all of that because their own darkness, 
their own intransigence has become so obvious in the face of the light of the truth, which, of course, is exactly what John was trying to write about from sure. the beginning. Sure, absolutely. Intransigence, by the way, that's a, a Hammond's family Sorry word. Yes. We, we use these words sometimes. Uh, and that's exactly right. And, and it's, it's interesting, as you were talking about that, the, the idea of, of coming into the light. You know, mm-hmm. Jesus presents the light, and John especially, not just in the, in the gospel account, but in the epistles also, uh, emphasizes the idea of Jesus being light and coming into mm-hmm. the light. In chapter 3, uh, this, this contrast coming out of the darkness into the light is not a pleasant kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And here's this man who has changed, his whole life has been upended. Uh, everything used to be figurative and literal mm-hmm. darkness. And now, all of a sudden, it's the best day of his life. Mm-hmm. He, he's in the light. And he thinks that his life is fixed. Yeah. He thinks that it's just, this is the most glorious day imaginable. And it turns into a nightmare. Yeah. It ends you up know? with him being cast out of the synagogue. Exactly. Which, if you, get, if you get withdrawn from here in the church, you go to another church. You keep your job. You do all this. If you're cast out of the synagogue, you have nothing. Now, this man was blind. He was a beggar. He didn't have anything to begin with, so maybe it wasn't as big a deal. Mm-hmm. But to your point... This whole experience has now been completely leveled because these men are unwilling to acknowledge that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. And the great thing, of course, the best part of this story is that Jesus does not forget about him. In fact, Jesus comes back. Right. Uh, and he actually does heal him because it's one of those things where I've given you sight, but now I'm going to truly allow you to see. Insight. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and, and I loved his response, the, the blind man, when he hears Jesus, he says, you know, you know the, the Pharisees have just told him, who do you, what do you say about him? Who do you say he is? And he says, well, he's a prophet. Well, Jesus now comes to him and says, who do you say that the Son of Man is? Same question that he gave to the apostles. Mm-hmm. And his response is great. It says, who is he, Lord, that I may believe on him? Mm-hmm. Basically saying, I will believe whatever you tell me. If you say it, then it's true. And mm-hmm. that's the faith that Jesus has been seeking. That's the kind of faith he's been trying to get from the Pharisees. Right. Because he's tried to tell them, you know, we, we, the idea of witnesses. That's another theme. John uses the word witness more than all three of the other Gospels combined because that's one of his main themes. And, and Jesus' point is the Pharisees go to him and say, you witness against yourself. Your witness is not true. He says, well, I witness what I have seen. I witness, you know, just because I'm only one witness doesn't mean it's not true. Right. I'm showing you what I have seen, and you choose not to believe it. But then, he, of course, he says, well, my father witnesses against me. And, oh, by the way, Abraham witnesses for me, too. And the prophets and which, Moses. Which, of course, is what caused the rock fight to, to start from the beginning. Yes. It, it's such a great good news, bad news, good news story. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that Jesus comes into the sinner's life and, and brings light, brings mm-hmm. healing. And, it's, and it's, everything's wonderful. And we think that's the end of the story, but it's not. It, it just gets started. Mm-hmm. Now, all of a sudden, you realize that, that light comes with a downside, that there's opposition, mm-hmm. there's enemies yep. that you may not have appreciated before, but now you absolutely appreciate. Mm-hmm. And then after, when it seems like your entire life is ruined, Jesus comes back again mm-hmm. and, and ministers to you again in your weakness, in your in your doubt, and say, mm-hmm. you, you have picked the right path. Light is better than darkness. Right. You can't imagine why anybody wouldn't want to see. Right. And well, we're going to give you an example of why they don't want to see, uh, because they're not from God. Uh, and that's what Jesus tells him in chapter eight. You don't, you cannot bear my words because you are not from God. Mm-hmm. You know, if you you do the works of your father. You do the works of the devil. If he tells you something, you will do that. But you're not going to listen to me. Right. Jesus comes into your light and brings light into your life. You may not like what you see. Mm-hmm. You may see something you weren't expecting to see. Something you wish you hadn't seen. Mm-hmm. Well, and it goes back. And this is the other thing that I really appreciated about this and what we've been talking about. Jesus was a master teacher in so many ways, and even being able to use these situations. Uh, you know, Jesus doesn't just tell him go to the go to the pool and wash. Go to the pool of Siloam, 
you know, we don't know where this happened, but there's a pretty good bet it was right around the temple as he was leaving. Well, the Pool of Siloam is way down on the bottom of Jerusalem. There's plenty of other pools up here that he could have sent him to. He sends him to this one. Well, the word Siloam means sent. It's the pool that, that sends the water down from the Temple Mount all the way down. You know, this is what Hezekiah built the tunnel for so that they would have water in the event of siege. Um, it came to symbolize God's blessings flowing out of the mountain for the people. And Isaiah, they're rebuked in Isaiah chapter 8 for saying, you know, because you have turned your back on the, the waters of Siloam, the, the peaceful waters here, and have gone after Remaliah and Rezin and, and these other kings out here, you know, I'm going to bring these, I'm going to bring these curses upon you. And so it's just another example of God being God sending his son into the world to minister to you, to show you the truth, to show you the light, and you don't want anything to do with it. Uh, it just it's just amazing how all of these things all come together in in one one act. That's right. So that's what Paul's been preaching. <laughs> this is what Paul's been reading. Most people's experience with Jonathan Swift and Gulliver's Travels is it's the children's story about the big guy and the little people, and that's and that's part of it. But there was a lot more that went into it. It was very, actually, very cutting satire sure. of the things that were going on during Jonathan Swift's time. And as a result of that, it's, it's been kind of interesting. I'd actually wanted to read a guy by the name of Samuel Johnson, who was one of the premier, if not the premier. Uh, literary critics slash poets of the 18th century uh, in England. Writer of the first dictionary. Yes, exactly. And um, first which, dictionary. fortunately, most of his other writing is more interesting than that. Yes. But he, and he didn't, like, he wrote it, as I understand, he wrote it so that it would be a, a reference for him and for other writers as opposed to just, I want to write a dictionary. Right. But, um, and so he, he had done some criticisms of Jonathan Swift. And in fact, he had written... The, the country called Lilliput is where all the little people were there. And uh, he had written a satire that purport, purported to have received more dispatches from them so he could tell a bit more. He was a little bit more on the nose than Jonathan Swift because he basically said, as it turns out, Lilliput is much bigger. In fact, their nation, if you took their map, it actually corresponds exactly to the global map. <laughs> and this, this nation is exactly like Spain. This one, so he, he was a little bit more on the nose with the, the thing that's interesting about Jonathan Swift, most of the satire itself goes over our heads because it was about things that were going on then. Sure. But Jonathan Swift's general attitude about humanity is what kind of comes out in this. And, and of course, he goes to the land of the giants where he's, he's tiny and they're big. And he goes to one where it is entirely made up of horses who can talk and reason. The humanoids in that area were, were just kind of right. cavemen. They, they were very undeveloped. And so that's what they thought Gulliver was. Well... Gulliver then, no, no, I'm sophisticated. We have a brilliant society. And he starts to describe all the things that's going on in England. All the, and this is what we've done. We've created this great empire. And we've had these armies. And we've gone and conquered people. And we've done all these things. Mm-hmm. And by the end of it, the, they look at him and say, and I, I can't quote it exactly. My English literature class, uh, my professor taught, made us memorize this. He said, I cannot but conclude your race to be among the most odious vile creatures that God that nature ever suffered to crawl upon the face of the earth the idea all the things that you take pride in are just horrible mm-hmm. when, when when looked at from a third party and that was how Jonathan Swift and, and his takeaway from that was that once once he got back to England Gulliver couldn't even be with people anymore because all he saw was these disgusting deranged 
people and, and so he couldn't even deal with them anymore mm-hmm. and and it came from the and the quote that came out of that was he said no I, I still love individual humans it's mankind that disgusts me yes you know we, we talk about how how does God see us well mm-hmm. if God were looking at all these accomplishments that we're so proud about you know God bless America well how would God view the things that we've done how would God view the things that we take pride in that's a great story. The idea of being able to separate yourself from your culture and, mm-hmm. and look at, at what you're actually doing. It, it's a skill that, that most humans not only do not have, they do not care to acquire. Yeah. Or, and, the, and we can go to the other extreme too. We can, we can, you know, we can judge it so harshly by saying it so that we can, when we do that, we can kind of remove ourselves and say, well, I'm not, I'm not with them. Right. I am kind of a separate party. And you see a lot of people that will do this too. They will go to the other extreme, which is, to judge incredibly harshly all the things that have happened in this nation and, and what our culture is about. And it's it's almost more from a sense of guilt that I don't want to be associated with sure. this, but I, I want to at least prove that I didn't approve of any of this. Mm-hmm. You know, all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. Humanity is is corrupt. Humanity, well, John Swift didn't say that. Well, the Apostle Paul said that. Well, yeah. <laughs> he, it's like what John oh, yes. Swift said, yes. which is what I was trying to say. Yes. But the idea that, that, that humanity is corrupt. We've been corrupted by sin. But that doesn't change the love that we have for the individual. And that doesn't change the fact that of this corrupt humanity, good people can be brought out and good people can be shown the light, as we already talked about. Instead of getting so caught up in how horrible our society is or how wonderful our society is, instead, let's just kind of dial it back. What am I doing? Yeah. Yeah. What's my neighbor doing? Well, and we have an instinctive desire to be associated with something larger than ourselves. Sure. And so we associate ourselves with America or whatever our country is. And so, like it or not, if we're a part of that, we take it personally when people say, well, America is this or America is that, because we feel like we belong to that, like it or not. And I think the problem that a lot of our Christians have is that our allegiance, it's not our allegiance, it's not even a conscious thing, but we see ourselves as Americans who are Christians. Right. Rather than Christians who also happen to be Americans, you know, and not to put too too fine a point on it, but you know, the whole concept of the podcast here is being a citizen of heaven. Exactly, uh, this is where our allegiance ultimately mm-hmm. lies, and we happen to be an American uh, in the twenty first century, you know, of such and such socioeconomic background, living in Pensacola, Florida, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but that's all secondary. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of that's going to change. Some of that may change. Some of it will certainly change. The one thing that can't change, the one thing yeah. that doesn't, is that we're still under God's son, we're still serving uh, the King of Kings. Yeah, and when and when when Paul writes about the idea, there's no more Jew nor Greek nor bond nor free. All are one in Christ. The idea is that we're taking our culture, whatever that culture was, and we're leaving it at the door right. when we put on Christ. Now, sometimes, a lot of times, what we'll do is we'll we'll say, yeah, we're. We're gonna. Everybody needs to conform themselves to the Christian culture, and the Christian culture just happens to be the way that we do things here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that can be a really hard, and frankly, one of the reasons why we divide as much as we do, because we haven't been able to separate what I believe and what I value and what my culture brings in, as opposed to what does the Bible say and what does God want me to conform myself to. That's right. So it's not about becoming more like the Lilliputians or less like the Yahoos or whatever. It's about it's about Jesus. Yeah. And uh, each one of us individually, and, and as much as we can, bringing people along with us, yeah. striving toward his ideals. And while I don't think that was Jonathan Swift's point, it's no. our point. So no, that's not his point at all. <laughs> this is what Paula has been hearing. 
it's what's been interesting to me more than anything else has been watching the, the, the people on the pro-life side that have really started to divide up into two sections. One of which is that this is what we need. This law is exactly what needs to be done. Bravo for finally standing up and doing doing what's right, protecting all unborn lives, even those uh, born out of rape and incest. Uh, this is the right thing to do. And then you've got another group here that says, "Well, hold on a second. You know, we've got a chance to put together a law that will stand up, that will that will accomplish almost all of those things, but." Without compromise, we're sacrificing the support of a lot of people out there that would be sympathetic to this cause. Now this is going to go to the Supreme Court. It very possibly will be overturned. Which way are we going to go? And so it's been really interesting to see the arguments that have gone back and forth from that. And, of course, both of these have driven the, the, pro, the pro-choice side even farther over, which has been amazing to hear some of the things that are coming out of that. And I don't even know if we need to even talk about that. <laughs> I fear, my concern in this situation is that Christians living in America or whatever country it happens to be, that we have gotten to where we're looking for a government solution to yeah. a spiritual problem. And and I don't doubt that government can be a tool for righteousness or or for evil, depending on the government, depending on the situation. Uh, we And I'm all in favor of voting for a, for a good candidate versus a bad candidate and, and that sort of thing. Exercise your right to vote, absolutely. But ultimately, this is not a problem that hasn't been dealt with with the right law. And, and if we pass the right law, that's not going to fix the problem. Mm-hmm. And, and this is, of course, one of the arguments that comes back. Well, we'll, we'll all the abortions will be happening in, in alleys instead of in, in hospital rooms. Well, that may or may not be the case. But the location or even the number of abortions isn't really central to the issue. Mm-hmm. The, the main issue is that we have developed a society that kills its babies. Mm-hmm. And passing a law isn't going to fix that. Jesus is going to fix that. And that's the only thing that will fix it. I was uh, referring to a few moments ago to Ezekiel chapter 30, 16, rather, in verse number 20. Moreover, you took your sons and daughters whom you had born to me and sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotry so small a matter? You slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. Besides all your abominations and harlotries, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and barren, squirming in your blood. That the the people of God here are depicted as being uh, a woman who has been delivered from sheer, uh, sure death and cleaned up and loved and nurtured and brought up, and, and now she's given herself to everybody and anybody. And and the worst of it is. And this is a, you know, do your research, you know, look on Wikipedia or whatever, you know, website you want to. That They had these these idols that they would heat up to, to super hot uh, temperatures, idols made out of brass or, or whatever kind of metal. And they would literally throw babies into the arms of these idols and, and kill them as part of this idolatrous ceremony. And we think of this and say, that's barbaric, it's horrible. How could you possibly do that? But exactly how different is that from what we're doing now? And the whole point of idolatry, you know, people didn't just do this because it was fun. You you, you offered an offered a sacrifice because you wanted an outcome. Uh, and if I'm going to offer my child, now this, these weren't people that didn't care about their kid. Well, they, you could argue that they didn't, but they loved their children. But they were willing to give them up for the greater good. The idea that the God will now bless us with whatever it was, victory in battle, you know, better crops, whatever the outcome that they wanted. Well, and that's it's essentially exactly what abortion is. It's the idea that I'm going to sacrifice the life of this child for the purpose of 
a better life down the road. There is a, a very real sense in which this is an opportunity, like so many others mm-hmm. that come up. And I was preaching about this the other day, the idea of, of life teaching us lessons. And, and one of the most important lessons that life teaches, that God teaches us through life, is, is the consequences that come with mistakes. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes removing the consequences from the mistake just emboldens us to make more and bigger mistakes. I'll, I'll never, I don't remember who said it, but I'll never forget the, what he said which was the idea that do not forget that the people that are serving Satan on this earth are not the people that you are fighting against. Right. That is not your enemy. You know, we talked in the earlier segment about the idea that, that darkness and light cannot coexist. And the brighter the light, the greater the darkness. The reality is that Jesus put these Pharisees in a position where they were just going to double down, double down, double down because they could not see the truth. There's going to be a lot of people that we talk to about this, that the more that we press and the more that we shake our finger, the more that they're going to resist. And we're talking about a culture that, for whatever reason, I, I, I suspect that my, cult, my, my generation and your generation may beat out the baby boomers as the worst parents in the history of mankind because we have failed. Not, I'm not you, but... Well, thank you very much. Taylor right. Conley, you guys are great. Um, <laughs> um, but... We have failed to teach certain values to the point where I was looking at a, a picture from a protest where there was about three girls, 20-something girls with signs that say, parasites don't have rights. Mm-hmm. When you have allowed your culture to get to that point, that I almost can't even blame those, those people for that sign because they don't understand what they're doing now. Right. Because they've been raised in a culture that has absolutely no regard for human life and has allowed this kind of thought to happen. And once that's happened, that takes a lot of undoing. This, this is why why pro-life people and pro-life activists get so frustrated. It, it's not a matter of researching the facts and finding out what side is more reasonable or, or more, more factual. That, that's not where this discussion is. This is an emotionally charged thing that has very little to do with facts and has all to do with your values. Yeah. If, if you have a value system that prioritizes culture, that provide, prioritizes other people, certainly the, the life of your own child, things of that nature, family, marriage, then you're going to be inclined to think in a certain way, but inclined very strongly to think a certain way. Now, if you're immersed in a culture that's all about me, 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 that has no real interest in other people, that doesn't care about, you know, if I'm perfectly willing to, to you know, steal this guy's wallet if I think I'm going to get away with it and, mm-hmm. and things of that nature. Disregard for other people. Well, this is the kind of world that you get. You get a Roman Shepherd 1 kind mm-hmm. of world where, where there's all kinds of depravity and ugliness which somehow or another gets blamed on Christians. Mm-hmm. That's, that's kind of the irony to all of this. It's a direct result of mm-hmm. not valuing God, of not valuing the things of God and the priorities of God. Well, and, and this goes back to our only, you know, you, you're not going to be able to out-argue anybody about this, but what you can do is live for Christ. Right. And you can live a life that, that will not be, you know, when they, when they speak evil about you, they'll be put to shame. The best weapon that we have against sin, the best weapon we have against the influence of the world is to live righteously ourselves. Exactly. And until we do that, that's, you know, that was Jesus' statement, by this shall all men know that you, that you have loved one for another. If we don't have that, we're going to fail. But when we do have that, we at least have a chance of showing people that this is serious and right. this is something that we believe and this is something we're willing to put our own lives into practice to do. Yeah, I, I have a, I've grown less and less inclined to do what I call throwing red meat to the lions with regard to, to preaching. I can get up in the pulpit and preach for 45 <laughs> minutes about how horrible abortion is and how this is just awful and we're turning our culture apart and killing our babies and get all the backpats in the world on the way out and accomplish nothing. Mm-hmm. It, it serves absolutely no purpose at all. What we need to do is get, and I'm not saying don't preach those sermons. 
I'm saying what we need to do more than that mm-hmm. is get back to a Bible-based principle of morality. If, if you can teach people to yeah. love the Lord, teach people to serve God, to accept what the Bible says on every subject, we'll get around to fixing the abortion problem, at least on on an individual basis. Maybe well, not a culture, but yeah. an individual. There was a, there was a podcaster that I listened to for, on occasion, and he, I think he stole this quote from somebody else, but said, anger is the devil's cocaine. <laughs> it's a great drug because mm-hmm. anger makes us feel good. And when, I, when we've got an enemy... When I've got somebody that I can, like you said, pound that podium, uh, that makes me feel better about myself. Yes. And, and we have to be very careful that these arguments of, aren't, aren't about justifying self. It's not about making me feel good about my choices because I can see somebody else who's made poor choices. I've heard a lot of people say nobody wants to get an abortion. and I, well, That's debatable, but at the same time, I think it's safe to say that 90% of the people are not looking to get abortion would rather not get an abortion. And and if you told them, if you told them at this point, look... This is going to result in you having to go get an abortion eight months from now or six months from now or three months from now. 90% of them would probably stop right where they were. They're, sure. they're not where they want to be in their lives. Well, and it goes I, back to what you were saying before about the, about the enemy not being the individual. And, and I, yeah. I wear myself out preaching the same thing. It's a family thing, I guess. We, mm-hmm. It's genetic. Dad we didn't talk thing. about that before. We it's, did not. Yeah. But, but it's absolutely true. It's, it's Ephesians chapter 6. Our warfare is not against flesh and blood. Yeah. It's against the rules, powers, the forces of darkness in, in heavenly places. The devil is the enemy. Mm-hmm. And the more emphasis we can place on defeating the devil, who has fought in, in the spiritual realm, not in the physical realm. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying don't fight physical battles, but primarily mm-hmm. realize we are spirit warriors. We're fighting a spiritual battle with thoughts and with, with values and, and with priorities, not with guns, not even with laws. Primarily, but mm-hmm. but focusing on accomplishing the spiritual battle, which may or may not go well yeah. in our culture, but that we can win in our own lives. Yeah. Well, and it goes back to something you said, and I think that you know those of us who are older, at least, can remember the the, the culture wars in terms of marriage and the idea of the the moral majority coming up and the the, the Jimmy the, the Jerry Falwells and all these people who who kind of create this religious right and the idea that we can harness the government to do our will and to do our bidding. And 30 years down the road or 20 years or however, we can see how spectacularly that has failed. Right. Uh, we've, we, you open the door for government to come into your business, into God's business. It will never go well. So millennials, go Google Jerry Falwell. Uh, and uh, that's what Paul's been hearing. <laughs> this is what Paul has been playing. The whole point of an MMO, the whole point of a game like EverQuest 2, uh, is that you can see your progress. It's measurable, at least until you get way up high and it becomes so frustrating that you quit the game. But the idea is that I can do things, I can see my skills going, getting better, and I see that impacted in the fact that I used to be able to go into the zone and not be able to do much. Now I can go and I can win because I can see visible, measurable changes. And if I get bored with that, so you, you'll sit there in front of the computer with an option of about 20 or 30 things that you could be working on, and it's difficult sometimes to force yourself to focus on the one thing where you know that you can make some progress mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to getting distracted by all the different options that you may have. So it's a, it's definitely not without its risks uh, in terms of getting involved in it. It's, it's fun if you can keep it under control, uh, but like so many things in life, uh, a little goes a long way. 
Well, and, and that's, that goes for any kind of human endeavor probably. And, and, but the idea of, of leveling and, and giving yourself a score, uh, some, a, a number that you can attain, where you can compare yourself to somebody else, for instance, you know, that, that's kind of an exciting thing. It's, it's measurable. Yeah. Uh, the ordinary, your ordinary life in, in your you know, Office X and, and Club Y or whatever, your, your accomplishments, uh, unless you're getting trophies or things like that, are, are usually, you know, well, you know, unclear, it is indef- it, undefined. And what happens, especially in the work environment, man, you just solved a really difficult problem. And you look around and go, did anybody see that? Did anybody see what I just did? And you want to do like in an MMO where the, the big the fireworks go off and the big and the, the bong and and you see the big letters you have just leveled and and now everybody in the chat chat uh, uh, chat columns sees you and says congrats and everybody's happy for you and and you wish you could do that in real life. You know, you you're walking down the street, you see the bomb, you or the, the, the panhandler or whoever, and you throw a dollar in his, his, his hat, and you've just leveled as a human being. That's and right. now everybody on the sidewalk applauds you and says, what a great job, and you're, you're a better human being than you were five seconds ago yeah. before you put the dollar in the hat. You're a level 27 humanitarian now. That's exactly right. Excellent. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of a shame, I suppose, but at the same time, do we really want to be comparing ourselves with each other like that? You know, when I was just thinking about what it would be like if we leveled up in, in Jesus, in that way, mm-hmm. if if somehow or another our our score was was in captions that followed us around everywhere when we went to church services or whatever, and this is where I am, and if I can just lead singing two more times, or if I can read uh, you know one more minor prophet, then I'll you know skip to the next level, and and everybody else will be so jealous and they'll be so happy for me, and 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 that's not the way that it works, of course. Well, but sometimes we think that's how it works, and that's actually I'm glad you brought that up because that's an I think that's a valid point. I may look at myself and say, you know, I'm only a level 20. You know, Revelation is a level 40 book. I don't have any business being in there. That's right. Or, and, and, you know, visiting the sick or, or, or teaching someone about the Bible, that's for people that are level 50 or level 60, and that's not really where I am. And we have a tendency to limit ourselves from that standpoint. We see ourselves as I'm only an entry level. I really need to, to level up, as you say, to where I, I'm going to be ready for that. But it's hard. When are you ready? You don't know. And the answer, of course, is that you're never really ready. You just have to go and do what you need to do. And, and lots of times we're, we're almost deliberately underachieving uh, because we think it gives us an out. We, we, we don't have to go evangelize. We don't have to, to teach somebody else or whatever because I'm not there yet. Well, why aren't you there yet? Because I haven't studied the Bible as much. Well, why don't you study your Bible? Oh, I'm not very good at studying the Bible. You know, and it just becomes this vicious cycle that just feeds itself. Well, and it, and, and it goes back to the concept of leveling, that if I study, I can spend a year studying the Bible. Well, am I better at Bible studying now than I was a year ago? Well, I may be. <laughs> I should be. Right. But I don't know. And there's no, it's very difficult to measure your progress and your growth as a Christian. And I think sometimes that's what can be very frustrating for people in general. That Am I better, we, we talk about this. Are you thinking about your growth as an individual, as a Christian, in terms of that? Am I better, am I closer to God today right. than I was last year or five years ago? And what's the answer? How do you answer that question? And it's not as easy as it sounds. No. And I think that can be very frustrating for people when they don't feel like they see growth. And they just kind of give up. Well, and maybe if we have this, this general notion that's not completely unfounded, but but this this confidence. I, I've been 
serving God for, for 30 years now. I've been serving God for 20 years now. And, and, and I'm, I feel closer to God. I, I pray more often. I, I worship more regularly. Uh, there, there's not a number that I can attach mm-hmm. to it, but I have this, this sense mm-hmm. that, that's really almost undeniable, that, that I'm a, at a better place now than I was before. Mm-hmm. And maybe I don't need a number on that. Maybe I don't need to measure whether the last five years was better than the five years before that. As long as we're deliberately trying to move forward, we're trying to grow, then the yeah. growth will happen. Well, and it's like in Second Peter one where he talks about you know giving all diligence to add to your faith, and I, you know and he goes on and looks at all these things as for if these qualities are in you and are, are abounding, you know those are things that we can see, but it requires, and this is why the, the Bible over and over tells us to examine ourselves, right. and we have to be able to do it with the honesty that says, yeah, I, 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 I think I am better, but on the on the same time, I don't think my patience is really where it ought to be because I can look back and see where I failed here. So we can we can actually become very granular in how we work on those things if we're willing to to put the energy right. into it. And, and when the answer is no, when we find out that you know, honest with myself, I'm not growing like I do. That's okay, mm-hmm. and that's that's not acceptable. But if you've identified that, and if you commit yourself to doing better in the future, we serve a forgiving God. We serve a merciful mm-hmm. God who, who's willing and patient with us. That he he wants to work with us. Mm-hmm. He wants us to develop. It's not about getting to the finish line faster than anybody else. Mm-hmm. It's not about reaching level 100 or level 1,000. Yeah. It's about committing ourselves to growth, however fast or however slow it, it may be, mm-hmm. doing the best we can, serving Jesus. Well, and I think the best you can is, is the key. I was thinking about this on the way down. In fact, um, talking about the idea of the, the greatest command, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. The idea that God, Jesus calls us to give all those things to him. Uh, and when we look at grace, a lot of times what we do is, well, the grace of God, what the, the reason for that is now I can keep some of that. God doesn't worry if I don't mm-hmm. give. Right. You know, I can give 75% to God and keep 25% for myself because God is gracious and God will allow that. Well, that's not how grace works. No. But what, what grace does work is that if I'm intending to give everything to God, and I fail, which is what's going to happen because sure. nobody is able to do that. But if I'm trying to do that, God sees that, uh, and God doesn't sit there and go, "Yeah, but your you know your skill level and patience is only at a forty-eight, and you really need to be about seventy to get into heaven, so you're not going to make it." And that's you know, that's a comforting thing too. If there were, if the the magic uh, solution to heaven was to to get to the level where we deserved it, then we'd all be uh, in for it. Yeah. Maybe we could finish off with this. The uh, the idea of, of le- one of the really frustrating things about these games is that there's no level last. You know, mm-hmm. there's no level final. There's always another step. There's well, al- well, there there is until they come out with the expansion, in which okay. case they raise it. So. Yes, so it, the bar always gets raised. There's always more and more that you can do, which can get kind of frustrating, but it also can get very encouraging and, and very inspiring. Uh, we as we strive to to serve Jesus, we never get to the finish line. We're always pushing forward mm-hmm. and and always improving. And and one of these days, the, the job that we started here so imperfectly in this life is going to be finished by God in heaven. Yeah. Amen. That's what we've been playing. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. If you've profited from your time here, I have a few requests of you. Please pray for me and for the work that's going on in my local work as well as the work here at Citizen of Heaven. The prayer is always that we create more citizens of heaven, the more the better. And the support that you offer does more good than I can express. Please subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Spotify, and other subscriber sources, and give a rating if you're able to do so. 
a higher rating obviously would be better. Please don't hesitate to share, especially on social media, through YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, whatever other social media you may have. And while you're on social media, don't hesitate to look me up and correspond with me. I'm always glad to hear from the listeners. Until then, be strong in the Lord, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.